Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork slash buy. Thank you. Nine. 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another of our special podcasts where we do a deep dive on a book we think you should buy. You should buy it and read it. And uh, many of the books we have on here, we think you should buy and read because they're good for you. But this one also tastes good. You know, I mean, this one is also a book that is entertaining. And that's because our guest, Mark Leibovich, is not only one of the best commentators on Washington, but for the most part, as far as I can tell, he hasn't lost his sense of humor. Periodically, reading the book, I feel it was, it was fading in and out like a distant radio signal, but uh, that's explicable. The book is called Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. I appreciate your uh, first of all, I don't know, have we ever met in person? This might be the first time we've ever met, at least virtually. So it's good to, to meet you and good to be on with you. Likewise. And I'm a very big fan of your work and your last book. And I was looking forward to this and I'm extremely enthusiastic about this one. And I, I, when I say people should go out and get it, I, I mean it. I think, needless to say, the way things work, the news gives us a, a hook to get into this today. I saw one of many interviews that Donald Trump uh, gave this morning. He seems really committed to admitting his crimes on television. In this particular one, you know, he said McConnell was bad. We're going to have to deal with him later. And, you know, it sort of resonated with the book because McConnell and all these others are like battered spouses, you know. For the most part, he says this stuff and they just take it. But I was wondering, just to begin with, you know, do you think that's changing? Do you think do you think the current crisis for Trump is beginning to eat away at that? Or do you think what it's going to really take is bad election results? I think bad election results will help the cause. However, We've been having versions of this conversation, and we sort of collectively as a group of observers watching the Republican Party go through their, whatever you want to call it, the psychological breakdown, spiral, fecklessness that, that has allowed them to stay so fused to Donald Trump. We've been having versions of this. And look, they lost the House 
the Senate and the White House under Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was the first president in 100 years to achieve that in one term. So it's not like pain has not been visited upon Republicans electorally, right? And, um, you know, he coughed up the Senate, I mean, pretty directly with the two Georgia candidates that he essentially lost the race for. So what's interesting now is that put aside the electoral considerations, because this is obviously not helping Republicans in the midterm. And I think it will certainly contribute, if not be a main main force and actually sort of certainly coughing up a couple of Senate seats. I, I think what's happening now is that, you know, you have a lot of the same silence, you have a lot of the same excuse making, but it's actually tapered off recently. What's been striking to me is that there hasn't been a lot of defense of Donald Trump from the usual suspects. I mean, Lindsey Graham said that outrageous thing about there will be riots in the streets if Donald Trump is indicted. I mean, he's since backed off of that. No one's defended him. It's been a pathetic showing, basically. So I just think it just continues. But what's interesting to me is someone who is promoting a book that is on this point, you know, beyond the opportunistic, you know, I'm happy that these themes are still relevant is that when you have, take together the January 6th commission and this story, the story just continues to rewrite its own self. It is something that there are examples every week of this. And I don't know what, why no one just doesn't stand up. Like John Cornyn, Mitch McConnell, people who have been reelected, like who have four or five years in front of them, right? Who don't have to face voters anytime soon. And just say enough, publicly say enough. This is a serious FBI investigation. Nothing you're doing is helping yourself. We need to look at this. We are a party of law and order. This is serious. Trump would obviously throw a tantrum. His, you know, Hannity would do all their force multipliers would do their thing. But I I think it's exactly what's needed right now. And it'll probably create all kinds of friction in the party. But I think that's needed also. Well, yeah, but what's needed from them hasn't been forthcoming. You know, it's not like they've summoned up great reserves of courage at any point along the way here. Listening to a sort of half think, you know, there is a kind of BDSM subtext to this whole thing where, you know, it's please, sir, may I have another? I mean, there, but, you know, we'll leave Lindsey Graham and those guys out of that for a second. The real core of it is that general elections are irrelevant if you lose in the primaries. And Trump is kind of the troll under the bridge you know, as far as the primaries, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's not the, I mean, he's, he's, he's on the bridge. He is the bridge in some ways, right? But yes, he is. And I don't know. I mean, look, they are stuck with these candidates. And, and what's amazing is Mitch McConnell, there's a subtext of victimhood around him. It's like, oh, poor Mitch McConnell. Like he has to try to keep all of this together. And, you know, Donald Trump has, uh, is attacking him and wants to end his career. I mean, you held quite a lot of power for a long time, especially right after uh, the insurrection i mean another thought experience what if you would what if you would what if you had convicted him i mean you said you sort of wanted to do it you were hoping for an impeachment you probably had the votes to orchestrate a conviction after january 6th and you didn't do it so what would have happened i mean trump yeah it would have probably broken the party in half for a bit but it, you know you had to come back together and you wouldn't have this problem now yeah and he also said you know let the justice department handle it and then when the Justice Department started to handle it, he started squealing like everybody else. You know, one of the things that I'm you know, struck by, and I, I'm not sure exactly where you mentioned, but at the sense that you were in the White House, you, you know, you spent the last 10 years with the New York Times, now you're at the Atlantic, but 
you, you, you were in the White House and you had some exchange with Trump. And I got this sense that it had grown tiresome. The Trump spiel had grown tiresome for you. But somehow the appeal endures to some. I mean, he is offensive. He's cheesy. He's not very bright. And yet somehow he, he maintains this hold. Why? It's a great question. I mean, in a sense, it's the central question to this. I mean, part of it's just the the basic T. You know, P. T. Barnum never underestimate the intelligence, or no one ever went bankrupt underestimating the uh, intelligence of the American people. Something like that. I wouldn't underestimate though the level of contempt, revulsion, you know, flat out hatred that a lot of his supporters have for people like us, for people in the media, people in corporate America, people in academia, the various bubble worlds that are seen as the power structure. There's all kinds of code words that people use, all kinds of subgroups, all kinds of... But I I was... Yeah, when always, you said people like us, I that wasn't my first thought, all those things. But, but I... You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, there is... They really hate... When I worked at the New York Times, I mean, it, it, part of it is just People don't like the New York Times when you're going out and recover and, and covering Republican events. I mean, that's been true for a while, but the level of menace and threat and, you know, actually security guards in our office had never reached the level it had before. And it's true of a lot of news organizations. But no, I mean, they are utterly convinced. A lot of his supporters are utterly convinced that they are fully looked down upon by, again, people like us. And, you know, you listen to a lot of podcast like this, you'd probably come to the same conclusion. And it's, is it looking down upon in a, I mean, are they deserving of being looked? I don't know. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of thought exercising, thought exercising going on inside of each other, but I would not underestimate the level of energy coming back in the direction of people that they perceive to be powerful and people they perceive to be at the cause of their problems. And, you know, a lot of them are immigrants, a lot of them are minorities, a lot of them are, I mean, there's a lot of otherness that we can throw in here. But I think that that's a big part of it. But yeah, I mean, and then the rest of it is that Trump's compelling, I guess, to a lot of people. That's why he had a top TV show. And that's why he was such a carnival barker and so well known for so long. I never cared about him, but then I kind of had to. Yeah, I think part of it is he gives license to people to express their, you know, anger, the things they were not allowed to say around the house that they now characterize as woke, which is to say they get to express their racism and their misogyny, and they get to look down on elites. And, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm happy to return the favor. You can reserve judgment for yourself. But, you know, I can't sort of say, oh, no, let's treat them well, because a lot of, lot of what's going on there is, is, is pretty awful. But, you know, they have their own elites. And, and that's, you know, part of the interesting part of this. Let me break the question in two parts. You know, on the one hand, a big portion of your book is really about, and, and, and even though it doesn't explicitly deal with this throughout, this incredible failure of the Republican leadership of the past 20 years to simply say, whoa, we can't go there. This is a bridge too far. and George Bush or Mitt Romney or some of the other leaders within the party, you know, Romney was like, I don't know if I like this guy. And then he was like, oh, what? but if he makes me secretary of state, maybe I could learn to live. That was a, a, a breakdown 
I just finished a book, which is coming out in a couple of months, where what I did was I talked to sort of the bureaucracy and, and a bunch of Trump appointees. But these are kind of, you know, in the sort of vein of the Alexander Vindmans, who are not visible most of the time. And they did stand up. They were whistleblowers. They behind the scenes would say, you know, we're not going to do what he said because it's crazy. And they kind of saved the country a little bit when their leaders weren't doing it. I think that that's right. The ones who were, were very few of them were elected. I listen to you talk. I mean, Mark Milley is someone who, I mean, he's obviously well-known. He's in a very high-level, powerful position. But, you know, he wasn't elected. He And it sounds like he did a lot of that work on a much higher level. I mean, but yeah, no, the, the failure at every, I mean, you could look at the failure to sort of stand up to birtherism 10 years ago, right, as, as a key piece of this. I mean, 10 years earlier, you know, George W. Bush has actually gotten a lot of sort of retroactive credit for sort of working to not vilify Muslims in America after 9-11. I don't think he got enough credit at the time, but he did then. And, and I think it was the right thing to do. And I think it's been talked about more now as the opposite has happened with, with Trump, you know, in any number of groups. But yes, you're right. I mean, I, I see that's why I'm of the belief that Liz Cheney, obviously, has gotten a lot of attention recently. I admire the hell out of what she has done and is doing. And I always get a lot of liberals pushing back on me saying, oh, what about the Iraq war? Oh, why didn't she do anything in 2019? Why didn't she vote for impeachment the first time? All legitimate, by the way. I mean, you can critique her for any number of things and question her timing, question her opportunism, question whatever. But I, I'm of the belief that it is never too late to stand up and do the right thing, no matter what the body of work is or when the clock begins for you. So, But it is a failure. It's a total failure to stand up. And what's amazing is, and this is why I wrote, thank you for your servitude. This is this was basically, this was the sweet spot I was looking for. And it's not sweet, but it's a spot. It's, a, it's an area. I could care less about Trump. I did not want to add to the White House. In, I mean, I care less about him. I, we, I care about him because... You know, he's important and he has done a lot to, for this country and not in a good way. I, I didn't want to write about Trump himself. I didn't want to write about the White House. I didn't want to try to psychoanalyze him any, in any different or more interesting way than anyone else. And I didn't want to try to understand his voters because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of attempts to do that either. I, the, the leaders or the putative leaders in the middle of this, the, the Lindsey Graham's, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Marco Rubio's, the Ted Cruz's are the ones who could have stopped him who could have stopped him, if not in the first place, certainly could have stopped him once he was in office by just sort of speaking out against him, using their bully pulpits, using their offices, using their voices, not being so terrified of him, of his tweets, of his voters, of the base, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they could have stopped him. He has been rehabilitated every time, not because he's like has the superpower that he can't be killed. They have allowed him to continue. They all privately say in different ways that, that he's a disaster. They don't have a lot of personal respect for him, like barely at all. And it's amazing to see this ongoing show of silence and weakness and fecklessness that, you know, I, I find myself, I've, I've been writing about this for years now, and I get riled up every time I get going on it. But it's amazing. He, he is their problem, and he continues to be their problem. He does continue to be their problem. But if you sort of break it down, part of the problem is him. Part of the problem is them. Even if he departs, 
the question then looms, does the next guy get the same license, get the same treatment? Are they into this foot soldier mentality? And does Ron DeSantis get past the baton? And, you know, he's got some pretty fascistic impulses, his own police force, kicking people out of elected jobs, not letting reporters in to cover him, et cetera, et cetera. Does does the rest of the party go, oh yeah, you know, we lived through Trump. Sure, we'll, you know, we'll we'll do this. And then this just becomes part of the character of the GOP, which is, yes, boss, whatever you say, boss, so long as you take care of my my issue. Yeah. And it's a combination of an authoritarian impulse and you know, it would seem from from where I sit to be really bad people. I mean, Donald Trump, I don't think is a good person for a lot of reasons. Ron DeSantis, I don't know as well, but he seems to have a lot of the hallmarks of someone, I don't want anywhere near an elected office or a powerful office that will have any control over my life. Then there are people who, I don't, I think people are complicated, obviously, but I mean, People like Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, McConnell, I mean, they're capable of, I think, better angels. I don't know. I mean, I think I think they're all sort of classic examples of Trump shining a light on worse impulses, just turning people into terrible versions of not only themselves, but of leaders and leadership and and agents of democracy at a time when a democracy is, is you know, is, is under threat. And it's not just agents of democracy is menaces of democracy, because that's sort of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you talked a lot, Kevin McCarthy, you talked to these these people at different points along the way, Lindsey Graham. And at some point, in fact, everybody I talked to for my book, who were cabinet and Trump cabinet and, and sub cabinet, most of them said at some point, I did this because I thought I could make things better. And I was sort of paying the Trump rent. You know, I was kind of doing what I needed to do to be in a position of power. Because if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else and they might not be doing the good. And I get that impression. You know, Kevin McCarthy's like, okay, yeah, I'll eat shit, but then I'll be speaker. Right. For two years, at least. Or who knows, you know, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you can't be, they still have the former speaker thing you can go into K Street with. Or jail. Jail, yeah, that works. We do, we do. We, we do yeah, maybe you'll get the Bakersfield, the Bakersfield Airport. Maybe, you know, his mentor, Bill Thomas, got a terminal at the Bakersfield Airport. Yeah, well, and he, that, well that's what they're looking for. I yeah. mean, you know, Howard Stern got a, a service area in the New Jersey Turnpike for a while. Who did? Howard Who? Stern. Uh, oh, he did, yes. Hockey, you know, right? So he, I just... No, that's got to be on the Garden State Thruway, right? Or it was the New Jersey Turnpike. I thought maybe it was the Garden State Parkway. I so just, on the New Jersey Turnpike, a lot of that's bogus because the Vince, Vince Lombardi rest area, which is probably the best known rest area, I always thought that that was weird because Vince Lombardi has no ties to New Jersey except that he was buried there. Strange. Anyway, I mean, I would think Brooklyn. I would think Green Bay, obviously Wisconsin, but New Jersey, it's weird. Anyway, that's an aside. No, no, it's really important. For, I'm from New Jersey and we take our our rest areas and our, our turnpike it's very seriously. I, you know, I drive yeah. from Washington to New York all the time. I take them seriously. And too. the fact that, you know, you've got rest areas for both like Walt Whitman and for Vince Lombardi, that shows what kind of state we are. We're a big tent. Kind of uh, absolutely. Well, I would say, okay, 
since we're, we're still within the aside, uh, I was interviewing uh, Chris Christie once when he was governor. And I, you know, in a moment of whatever, I said, okay, you're governor, you're okay, who gets a rest area? You, you could have one man authority to eliminate rest areas, add rest or rename anyone you want. And I went down the list and um, I think Springsteen gets one. Um, what's the game? Tony Soprano. What's his name? James, James Gandolfini got one, obviously. Uh, and, but he wanted to take away Molly Pitcher, I think. I think he wanted to keep Tom Stockton, no, Dick Stockton, Richard Stockton. I guess he signed the Declaration of Independence. Anyway, you'll have a, you'll have a great podcast on New Jersey Turnpike, and that will get you a name on a rest area, the David Rothkopf. Yeah, uh, yeah or just a men's room, maybe, or something. <laughs> yeah, it's well, that's immortality. But in any event, speaking of rest area restrooms, you, you spent a lot of your time in what became kind of the biggest gold-plated toilet in Washington, which was the Trump Hotel. As swampy as it gets, people would take these tables, whether it was Rudy Giuliani or, you know, these other hangers-on, or foreigners would come in and book vast amounts of room there, and and Trump would go over there and have ketchup on whatever he was eating, and, and it was like, a, it was, it was you know, the, you sort of got the impression at some point reading this that you didn't have to open, you have doors that open in this hotel because people would slither under them. But it was a kind of a microcosm. The question is, you know, there have always been, you know, lobbyists. There have always been hotel, you know, the Willard Hotel in the 19th century, people would go and they would do similar stuff. Was this different by an order of magnitude, by an order of cheesiness or something else? Yeah, I mean, I well, first of all, yes, it was different. I'll tell you why. First of all, the Willard Hotel, you probably know this, but a lot of the influence peddling of the day took place in the lobby of the Willard Hotel, which is how the term lobbyist got coined. So anyway, little known fact for listeners. But no, I don't think this has ever, there has ever been a place, a watering hole, a Rick's American Cafe, a Cheers bar, whatever you want to call it, that had been so centralized in Washington. I mean, there's always been places where people hang out and stuff, but here you had this junction of Republican office holders after hours, cabinet people, administration people, White House officials, Trump himself, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, you know, had a place there. Rudy had a place there sometimes. He had his own table. And, um, you know, a lot of journalists showed up there, including myself. I mean, because you could um, you could get a lot of work done because they all were totally gossiping and totally, in their own way, traumatized or, or I don't know what they were doing, but a lot of them were drinking. So you could get a lot of reportorial work done, but it was it was a perverse rendering of the swamp. I mean, Donald Trump, I, I say this in the book, I mean, he didn't drain the swamp, he perfected the swamp. Um, and the swamp sort of as sort of loosely defined as people coming to Washington to feather their own nest to sort of help themselves to make money or to just do whatever is in their own interests. And you'd have people there who wanted to be seen giving money to the president, essentially, you know, paying money to his organization that owns the hotel. And they would want the president or his family to see this so that he might be predisposed to either endorsing them or pardoning them or or holding a fundraiser for them or saying something nice about them. I mean, it was so over the top, pathetically swampy. I mean, again, swampy is like, it's an unsatisfying word, but it's the word we're talking about here. But that all went on here. And as a practical matter, it was a beautiful place. It's a beautiful building. Uh, The old post office building 
It's a historic landmark, one of the tallest buildings, structures in Washington. And it's gorgeous. And for four years, it was the Trump Hotel. Um, it's now a Waldorf. They sold, you know, in a swampy tradition, even though he was disgraced, he made like a $100 million profit off of it. And now it's a Waldorf. I haven't been in there since it's uh, in this current incarnation. But no, but that was, I think, ground zero for a lot of stuff that went on. I mean, a lot of the Charlottesville organiza- organizing went on there. Uh, the January 6th organizing went there. The the drug deal, um, with that, as uh, John Bolton called it, for Ukraine and just all kinds of stuff. That was sort of the center of gravity. And uh, I just spent a lot of time there. Well, did the sort of sleaze and transactionalism and Trump's love of being in the middle of all of that, does that color your view of what it might mean to leave a lot of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? Oh, that's great. That's a good question. I mean, I mean, here's what I found about Trump, and I'm not the only one. You can generally assume the worst. I mean, you know, remember, like, it was almost bizarre and, and like outlandish to say, like, in 2016, yeah, you know, he may, I think he's kind of might have some relationships with Russia. I mean, Russia might have something to do with this election. This seems a little untoward. His Putin thing seems weird. And, you know, it all just sort of, it, it all just sort of checks out over time. And because he's so out front about it, does that mean that it seems less scandalous and people get less outrage? But, you know, you hear about these documents and then the innocent explanation that if you are inclined to thinking for what is the innocent explanation for this? It's like, oh, yeah, he was sloppy. You know, he threw a bunch of stuff in a box and he got some stuff. I mean, that would fly for some people. Um, you know, it's been used as a defense, you know, not effectively, but it's it's something that is certainly within the realm of the human nature of a somewhat well-meaning person. And then you sort of learn more and more about this. And I mean, over just only a few weeks. And who knows what he's capable of? What the hell is he doing with this stuff? I mean, it's one thing if it's like a tchotchke. It's one thing if it's like a bunch of letters from world leaders that he wants to collect and give to his grandchildren. And, you know, I guess technically they are classified and they are archived. I mean, for a lot of reasons, I mean, but that's not like, I don't, that's not going to outrage me. I mean, but I mean, the stuff about Macron, which, you know, might be, I don't know. I mean, it's, you have to assume possibly the worst because precedent has always sort of gone in that direction. And I don't know. I mean, is the GOP going to forgive it? Sure. Why not? Because they've forgiven everything else. Right. Including, you know, a coup attempt. So I mean, it's hard to top that. I will just say this. I mean, I know we're running out of time, but there was a um, there's a line and I actually was going to write another story about it. But there's a congressman from New Jersey, uh, Kim, I I forgot his first name, uh, something Andy Kim, I think is his name. He had a Facebook post right after January 6th. And he said that as scary as January 6th was, what was scarier to me was the feeling for those several hours at the end of January 6th, when you could see Republicans sort of retreating to their original talking points. So many of them voted against certification anyway. They all knew better. And he knew then, he wrote that he knew then that this was going in a direction that was really scary because it was going to be permitted by one of our two major parties. And I keep yeah. coming back to that. Yeah, no, and we do. And, and, and as far as the Mar-a-Lago thing goes, you know, I think one of, you know, this book is super helpful because I think it provides a kind of a, a, a look at the pathology of Trumpian Washington, you know, because it's, not, it, it's, it's a hive. It's not one person. And so the interaction between the members of the hive 
and seeing them as a collective in a collective view is important. Seeing them that way with appropriate amounts of insight, cynicism, humor, and so forth, that's even better. And big credit to you because most people write pretty dry stuff. You then can transfer that to a place like Mar-a-Lago and you go, well, you know, we know of one case of Chinese spy there. We know one case of a Russian spy there. We know it was a target for all of these spies. We know that, you know, today he was complaining, well, I wouldn't leave all these classified documents on the floor, meaning, I guess, I kept them neatly in my desk drawer with my passports, which is, but we also then have pictures of all these characters going through that office. And you can just extrapolate. You can extrapolate to another Trump administration if you get to another Trump administration. absolutely. No, absolutely. It's terrifying, but it's all the precedent. I mean, yeah, for as outrageous as it seems, it just you can see how he can survive this. You can see here how he could survive the next thing. And, you know, it just sort of builds on itself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I mean, I think the book is great on its merits. I think it's great in terms of the facts and I think it's great in terms of the insight. But it's also really important because as much as all of us, and I sensed it from you, want to turn the page on Trump. We don't get to choose. And the reality is he may be around for a while. This may be the reality for a while. And if we don't stop and try to learn the lessons of this, what we're going to end up with is going to be worse, right? I, I mean, that's... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, here's a little story that I can to wrap up with. I mean, I remember on January 6th, yeah, I'd written a lot of the book. And, you know, like a lot of people, I was sort of stuck at home during the pandemic and I was walk, working from home and no one really... It was a weird, weird, weird time. Still kind of is, but it was really weird in 2020. And I was trying to finish up the book. And I remember on January 7th, I get an uh, email from my book editor. And he said, well, I guess you know what the final scene is going to be. I'm like, yep, I guess so. Well, there you go. And so I'm like, all right, just end with January 6th. And um, I'm like, whoa, there was, (laughs) there were, I think I wrote two chapters just before the end of January, uh, between January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago visit by Kevin McCarthy. But no, it keeps going. And the story almost gets scarier in some ways. And that is another reason I admire you. And I also have sympathy for you, because having also written a book about that period, ending it was impossible, because every single week, some new thing would come up. And I was like, you know, two weeks ago going, can I just throw in a sentence? You know, no, you're right. You think like a a first of all, you think like the news cycle. You're like, okay, got to throw this in there, got to reflect this and everything. I I will say this. I mean, and you can sort of appreciate this as a writer. When I was done and I was like editing and I was going through the last sort of um, round of 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 tweaks and stuff, Ukraine happened. So this was in March, uh, late February, March, and uh, I did find that very clarifying because to me, the courage of the Ukrainian resistance was extremely clarifying given the the patheticness of the resistance in the Republican Party. It's basically the same principle of standing up to a tyrant, right? I mean, obviously, very different stakes, very different level of danger and magnitude and so forth. But a tyrant, whether you're Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump, is going to take what you can get or what he can get. And, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy over here, Zelensky over here, I mean, that is a great point, because they will really take what they can get. They will go as far as they can. And so far, the Republican Party has provided absolutely no resistance, which leaves the entire responsibility on Democrats, independents, and others to do it. I mean, I saw with, you know, coming from a foreign policy lens, I looked at Ukraine and the Ukraine war, and then I thought, 
oh, gee, this is the country he was shaking down. This is the country he was withholding money from. This is the part of the world where he wanted to pull the troops out of NATO and promised to shut down NATO in his second term. And so, again, you know, it, it, it was an excellent, excellent lens. Anyway, look, this is a great book. We could go on and on. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. The book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Really, really encourage uh, everybody to get it, gift it, et cetera. And uh, I hope we can continue the conversation sometime because I really I look forward to it. I look forward to meeting you in person and, uh, and good luck with your own book. Thank you very much. Bye bye.